Hello everyone and welcome back to Footprints. In this month's episode, we're going to be exploring Bath Stone. It's world-famous honey colouring giving the World Heritage City of Bath its hugely distinctive appearance. We find out about Ralph Allen, who promoted the use of the stone in Bath by investing in the stone mines and using it for his own mansion up at Briar Park. Our resident Batman, manager of Bathscape, Dan Merritt, tells me all about the bats that have made their home in the disused mines. But let's start off at the stone mines themselves. At the very top of Coombe Down lies the Museum of Bath Stone, and it's here that I met up with its chief executive, Miranda Litchfield. The museum sits right on top of the mines, which are now disused and filled in. I started by asking Miranda, what exactly is Bathstone? Bathstone is about 163 million years old. We are on a sort of plateau up here in, in Coombe Down. It's a, it's a Jurassic stone, so it's quite a, a modern stone compared to some others. It's a freestone, which means it can be cut in any direction, which makes it very good for sculpting um, and a lot of the sort of Roman and Italian-style architecture we see in, in Bath. It really lends itself to that. It has those qualities. It's very strong as well. It, it weathers very nicely, and it does stand the test of time. So it's been very sought after, but it is a finite resource. Yeah, so when did it start getting mined and who was behind it all? We know the Romans obviously used some bath stone from the, the Roman baths. We don't know quite where they got their stone from. Unfortunately, they didn't, didn't tell us likely open cast quarries. But stone quarrying here really started in the 18th century. So early 1700s, there would have been people taking it from the surface in open cast quarries. Um, and then later when Ralph Allen saw the potential here, that was when it was really exploited in quite large quantities for a long time. So we know the name Ralph Allen and we know that he's the man who built Briar Park. But tell me about his connection with stone mines. Yeah, of course. Prior Park is a brilliant building and uh, I don't know if you knew the quote, but it was built to see all of Bath and for all of Bath to see, which we think is really nice. And if you visit, if you are lucky enough to visit the grounds or visit the gardens, then you, you definitely get the sense of what he was trying to achieve there. Ralph Allen, he made his wealth with the postal service. So there's the Bath Postal Museum, which will cover his contributions to that industry in detail. We don't really know whether he had an affinity or connection to Bathstone in particular or to quarrying or had done anything else. He was obviously a very intelligent man. He had the wealth and quite possibly the, the contacts and things to sort of set up the operation here. He did put some very impressive engineering feats into the city um, and built a tramway to take the stone from Coombe Down, which is obviously in an elevated position compared to the city centre. So he was able to transport the stone and improve road connections. So although he was making money from the stone, it actually had some good impacts on the city and the landscape. Just give us an idea of the timeline of this. When did it all begin? So about 1725, Ralph Allen started his quarrying empire, if you like, up in Coombe Down. Um, and it was from there virtually up until his death that it was being quarried in Coombe Down under his name. Um, once Ralph Allen... Um, had passed away and the estate was sold. Um, it was actually divided up, so three people then actually t- took on and, and three separate quarries developed who continued to exhaust the stone for some time. But largely up until about the mid-1800s, about 1840, was when it, quarrying had, had largely finished here. Most of Bath, as we know it, had been built by that point, had it? 
So the Georgian buildings, the, the buildings dating from between that time, so about 1730 to 1840, you can, not necessarily it came from Coombdown, but you can be fairly certain it came from Coombdown because there were so few other quarries taking stone at that time. So the Bath stone, it is, it's a local resource, so it would have come from Coombdown. Take me around. It's a beautiful, beautiful building you've got here. It's quite small, isn't it? I think you call it a micro-museum, is that right? Yes. Yes, a micro-museum we think fits quite nicely. We are a small museum and we have a really big story to tell, so it's been quite challenging in the development programme to think about how we can use the space. But we are very fortunate in that this building was purpose-built in 2012, opening in 2014, so we've got the facilities, full accessibility and and all the things you'd expect to see in a modern building that's open to the public. So that's, that's really the infrastructure is there but we do hope people can spend at least an hour here with us learning from the displays and the interpretation and also from our our staff and volunteers who are very passionate about the subject too but we can't actually go in the mines can we not unless you have wings (laughs) and you are a bat if you are a bat you can you're very welcome in the mines Um, but unfortunately there is no human access to the mines in Coombdown any longer take me around the museum where should we start Shall we start? Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> so on one side, you've got a lot of beautiful black and white pictures of the insides of the mines. Let's start with mm-hmm. those. So this is actually brand new. So here today, installed this morning. Wow. <laughs> here this afternoon. So a real uh, exclusive look at the museum. So we've chosen these photographs from the uh, David Pollard collection. And he's wrote a brilliant book on Bath Stone and, and knew probably more about the subject than anybody else. So these are his images of the Coombdown stone mines and they are black and white so they give the impression they're old but they were actually only taken in about 2009 so these were taken during the stabilisation so they show this, the, the kind of state of the mine just before it was filled in and we've chosen these particular photographs to try and give as much of an immersive feel of the stone mines as possible um, but also to highlight some of the archaeological details and also just why the stabilisation was needed. So in one of these photographs you can see quite clearly uh, tree roots hanging from the ceiling of the mine to the floor. <laughs> so we thought this was a really good way to show people just how close the ceilings of the mines were to to the ground above. So this you can you can imagine that tree is not much further Um, above than we can see so again it just sort of reaffirms why the stabilization was so needed at that time and why it was critical and here is a is a an image with a lot of pit props yeah, so this one is really interesting. It's, um, we believe it's a modern use of the pit prop technology to secure the seeding. And the pit props, you know, they, the, the quarrymen would have put them up uh, and they stayed there until it was filled in. So they absorbed a lot of water and they got darker over time. And you can see in some of the other imagery where those pit props are, they're completely jet black. And you've got Harry Patch up there. What's his connection? Oh, he was born and bred in Coombdown. He's arguably one of our most famous residents. Um, so it's really nice. We do as much as possible in the small space. We are set up on the legacy of the stabilisation. So the stone mining is the core, really, of our story. But we do try as much as possible to bring in um, notable people that have you know, achieved wonderful things that are from Coombdown as well. And I notice you're devoting two, if not three, <laughs> displays 
to the bats that have made the mines their home. Yeah, so although the mines have been derelict for several hundred years, they weren't completely um, vacant of life. There were a, a very significant population of uh, lesser and greater horseshoe bats as well as some of the other species we get in the UK. There's a very, very significant number living in the mines. Horseshoes particularly are cave-dwelling species, so the mines made a perfect home for them. Bats are protected by law and you have this really significant population, so they actually built some special bat tunnels. We think it's really important that people understand them better so we can uh, make a more of a positive contribution to their conservation. So we've actually been working with some students at Bournemouth University and they have made us the most amazing and hyper-realistic models of lesser and greater horseshoes. So we will have those on display so people can become acquainted with the different characteristics of each different bat. And then we also have a trail of about 12 bats for people to find in the museum which we will be hiding in crevices and in the ceilings and in the roofs for uh, our younger visitors to find as well. So we're really looking forward to launching that next year. That sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) And then moving back along the final wall, you've got displays of stone. What what type of stone is bath stone? There's all sorts of different types of bath stone depending on the exact locality where it comes from. And you get a greater oolite and an inferior oolite as well. So the greater oolite is the paler stone, um, which is very sought after, very hard. Then the inferior oolite is a different bed. It's still bath stone, but it's very, one of my favourite words, it's very fossiliferous and it's very shelliliferous as well. And you said that it's a finite resource. How long will it last? And are there still quarries? Obviously, this one isn't used, but are there still quarries around Bath where you can get Bath stone still? Well, really interestingly, obviously, Bath being a very high conservation area, occasionally what they do if um, an old building is in need of restoration is they will actually open up the quarry. There are a couple of them that do this. They will open up the quarry and go and get that particular piece of Bath stone to replace anything which is broken or decaying or damaged and needs replacing. So that's really interesting. So there is a, there's a sort of historical conservation side to Bath stone quarrying. But then there are also two large outfits that do supply large quantities of Bath stone every year. And there's one in Limpley Stoke, which is Bath stone mine. Um, and then there's one in Hartham Park, which quarry the caution Bath stone as well. And both have about 40 years left in terms of output and demand how long they think they can continue quarrying for trying to keep the city as it grows and expands in keeping with its historical origins is is quite a challenge um, especially knowing that bath stone is a finite resource it's not something like glass or wood which you can you can keep going with if you like for listeners where are you and how can people come and visit you so we're in Coombe Down, we're in Bath. At the moment we are open by appointment only because we're doing development work and it's only myself and a colleague here working to get the museum accredited. We are planning to open next year two days a week with the full museum experience. The best way to keep in touch with us is to follow us on social media, sign up to the newsletter or visit our website for more details. But anybody wishing to know more about Bath Stone or wishing to get involved is really encouraged to get in contact with either myself or my colleague Imogen because uh, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for showing me around. It's been an absolute pleasure to see all your beautiful exhibits. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely to have you, Pommy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We heard about the bats that love to fly into the stone mines and I thought it would be fun to find out more about them and what's happened to them since the stone mines closed. Given it's the season of Halloween, I asked our very own Batman, Dan Merritt, manager of Bathscape, to take us behind the scenes of the Bat Cave. 
So I actually moved to Bath to lead a project called Batscapes at that time. And it was when they were infilling the mines and we were trying to improve the habitat around the mines and the area for the bats that were, were living there. In the UK, there's 18 species of bat, although 17 of them you're likely or possible to see. One of them, there's only one of them left. And that's down in, in the kind of southeast. It's one that hibernates each year still down there. But um, yeah, so the 17, I think we had 12 of those species using the stone mines. Um, so it's an important site and it's a, it's a special area of conservation. Um, so kind of European designation for its bats in the area. So that includes things like pipistrels and yeah. horseshoe bats. That's right. Yeah. I, I know very little, as you can tell, about bats. <laughs> so you're going to have to tell, tell me more. Well, nine out of ten bats that you're seeing are going to be pipistrel bats. They're by far the most common ones. And those are the ones we tend to see flying over our gardens. And they're all over the UK. And then the others kind of gradually become slightly less common until you get down to things like horseshoe bats. Horseshoe bats are a very uncommon bat. And we only really find them in the southwest and, and in Wales. So they have spread their range a little bit over the, the last few years. But I think there used to be, for greater horseshoe bats in the 1900s, there used to be about 300,000 of them. And then they dwindled down to about less than 10,000. But I think they count about 13,000, they think there is now. Um, but one of the areas they hang, have hung on is is around here. And bats like to live in caves, is that right? Yeah, so they use caves and underground structures, particularly for hibernation and also for swarming sites. For part of the year, they're using underground sites. Not all of them, some of them live in trees, but a good number of them will move into underground sites at some time during their life cycle. Why do bats swarm? I've never heard that before. So swarming is what they've they've been doing during the autumn, so in the summer they have their young and then they, they're feeding up to put on fat to get through the winter. But they also do this thing which is swarming where they go to underground sites and it's a bit like a bat disco. So they go in there to, to kind of hang out and mate and exchange information. We don't really know what they do because we can't really think like a bat. But we know that they'll turn up in numbers overnight in these sites and be coming and going and, and mating and heading out and heading off. So it's not all species, you know, some species don't do it as much. So the horseshoe bats, the males tend to hold territories and have harems and the ladies come to visit them and, and spend a few few nights with them and then, then go off and a few of the other bats do that as well. But uh, a lot of the vesper bats, they'll, they'll do this kind of swarming activity at the, at the mine entrances and they do that in these mines around Bath as well. So they're in mines around Bath, one of which is Goomdown Stone Mines. And they've been filled in so that human beings aren't going to kill themselves going down there and also to protect, presumably, the houses that are above them. But the bats are still living there, is that right? Yeah, so the bats were, were there before. In fact, the earliest I can remember seeing of, of them is, is from... Um, I'll, I'll show you, actually. Let me, let me show, show you. Me, show me, show me. Oh, what, what are we doing? Oh, books, books. Have you heard of Harry Patch? I have heard of Harry Patch, and there was a picture of Harry Patch on the wall in the museum. Aha. Well, in Harry Patch's autobiography, then he mentions about the bats. He mentions about the mines. So Harry Patch was born in just before 1900, I think 1898, I think he was born in. And he says about the bats, or about the mines, that all sorts of creatures lived in those caves, including bats hanging upside down. We tried to knock them off with a catapult. Or if they were low enough, we would pull them down with our hands and hold them, like holding a mouse with wings. Later, a rare species of bat was discovered there, and it cost a small fortune to make good the cave entrances so the bats could come in and out. So <laughs> that's him talking about the works that was done on the mines. 
But the bats that hang upside down are the rare bats. So the ones that Harry was firing his catapult at was the rare horseshoe bats. <laughs> but I say in 1900, when, when Harry was doing that, then there was about 300,000 of them. And they then dwindled down by the late 70s to, yeah, less than 10% of that. So uh, Too many boys with catapults. Yeah. So they've always been there for a long time. And thankfully, because of the works they did when they were doing the infilling, they created chambers for them. And um, they had a chap called Roger Ransom who was overseeing works. He was a very kind of well-known bat expert. And um, he built incubators as well for them to, to collect him for the lesser horseshoes, particularly have used those to, to um, roost in during the summer. And uh, the bats still come back and spend the winters there as well. So all sorts of bats, including the horseshoe bats. So it was a, a success, thankfully. So the population of bats hasn't decreased from the filling in of the mines? Uh, no, I think, if anything, for the horseshoe bats, it's it's increased. I'm not sure on that. I don't, I don't know the figures I say. I used to be involved with it, but I haven't been for... This is going back 15 years for me, being involved with Pommy. But, um, yeah, they, they went up and, and it was success for them for attracting the horseshoes in. I think the lesser horseshoes certainly increased in numbers. I'm not sure the greater horseshoes still breed there, but um, I think they're still there um, sometimes during the year. So for people who don't know anything about bats and might even be a bit of frightened of them, what can you tell us that will make us feel a bit more friendly towards them? Uh, well, the classic thing they always say about bats is, is how useful they are for, for eating things like midges that bite us. So little pipistrelle bats, that we, the ones we do see, they can eat, they say, about 3,000 midges every night. So if you're fed up with being bitten as you're walking along the canal of an evening then thank the pipistrelle bats and the other bats as well you know for for eating lots and lots of those hoovering them up so uh, yeah it's kind of pest control if nothing else they're they're wonderful but they're they're wonderful little creatures they're fascinating you know because of they live for so long you know a greater horseshoe bat can live for 30 years wow. so yeah yeah so they're they're an interesting creature all around it's unlike mice you know that live a couple of years and have 10 young every five minutes you know greater horseshoe bats or any bats only have a single young a year or two at most, and then um, they'll live for a long time. So because of this, it, it makes them quite vulnerable. It takes them a long time to pick their numbers up. And they're collecting in roosts together as well when they're having these young. So if you, we lose these sites, then it's incredibly important. You know, you can quickly wipe out bat numbers. And that's why bat roosts are protected and why hibernation sites as well are protected because they'll gather in, in huge numbers there. So this episode goes out at the beginning of November. Where are we now in the life cycle of the bats? So they'll have finished their swarming activity journey now and they'll be moving into their hibernation sites. So they'll stay a bit active, particularly horseshoe bats. I mean, they, they actually do stay active through the winter. So they'll still rouse every you know, kind of 10 days or something and, and feed up if it's a mild night through the winter. Um, so we think of hibernation as this complete shutdown, but it isn't necessarily. But yeah, they're, they're kind of moving to hibernation sites. For some bats, that might be big old thick trees. Um, others, it'll be underground sites. For some, it'll be, be buildings. Um, but they're looking for kind of insulation from the from the weather's extremes, I guess, and somewhere where they can just re retain their energy um, because there's not the food for them to, to eat generally. So it's only on those kind of milder nights when there will be them something to eat. And how long are they hibernating for? When will they start waking up and moving about more? Typically, in t they'll hibernate until about April time. So they might move sites within that so they might go somewhere that's a bit more close to kind of ambient temperatures so they can judge what temperature is outside of it better as it gets into the spring. But yeah, they'll, they'll then only really start to appear kind of April time. Maybe it depends on the weather, obviously, but um, April's the kind of time when you'll start to see bats coming out again. So nearly six months. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. But I say they will, they will fly 
through the through the winter at some points on those kind of milder days, and some will be out in in kind of March time as well. But uh, yeah, it's a fair old part of their year. I guess for us, maybe if we slept six months a year, probably we could live a lot longer as well. I think we definitely would live a lot longer if we slept more. Now, later on the, in this episode, I'm going to go up to Prior Park and see where Ralph Allen lived. Does he have any connection with bats? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the mines here and on Bathampton Down as well were, were kind of Ralph Allen's mines. So it's it's down to him, really, that we have this kind of network of of caves, mines that um, the bats have, have, have called their own. So um, I'd like to think they're thankful for him, but he's, he's, uh, he has a mausoleum, Ralph Allen, he's buried down in Clarton Churchyard. And with horseshoe bats, they, they often do this kind of hanging up to eat and to rest in the night. And there's one that actually often hangs above his grave and sometimes deposits little droppings on his grave, I'm afraid. But I like to think that it's just there to kind of keep him company and say, thank you very much, Ralph Allen. Now, Bathscape does bat walks and you've got bat detectors. Tell me about that. Yeah, bat walks are really popular. And one of the reasons they're popular is because you get to play with a bit of kit called a bat detector. And because they're difficult to see bats, although you will see them flying past, what we tend to do to find where bats are is we have bat detectors that listen in on their echolocation calls. So as I'm sure a lot of people know, bats use this this kind of shouting out in their ears for hearing the, the, their calls rebounding off everything echolocation to understand where they are they aren't blind but in the middle of the night if you're trying to see a tiny midge then you're you're going to struggle so they use sound to find their way around so the bat detectors bring those calls down into our hearing range um and so we can kind of listen in on the bats and that's that's great for us when we do the walks and kids love them and suddenly you'll be walking along and there'll be this kind of sound coming past and uh, you look up and there's a bat flying over your head there won't be any now till next spring and summer, will there? No, you've missed your chance. You'll have to come out on a bat walk with us next summer, Pommy, and I'll uh, I'll do my routine. <laughs> oh yes, okay. Well, we'll we'll line that up for a future episode. Thanks so much, Dan, for bringing the bats to life. No worries. Yeah, and welcome to Coombe Down. It's a lovely place to be, and yeah, it's a fantastic place for bats and a fantastic place journey for wildlife as well. Oh, so there's a bat that watches over Ralph Allen's mausoleum. Who knew? Well, I think it's time now to find out more about the man behind the beautiful stone of Bath. As well as the Georgian houses and the streets of Bath, the stone's been widely used outside the city. Locally, we can see it at Claverton Pumping Station and it forms part of the Dundas Aqueduct. In Bristol, it's been used for the Cathedral, the Wills Tower and Cabot Tower and then many, many buildings and mansions further afield. The National Trust owned the mansion he built at Prior Park and we hear now from one of their volunteers, Robin Dixon, who's been involved for many years, leading walks and is both hugely passionate and extremely knowledgeable. So who better to take us on a walk now around the gardens? Well, welcome to Prior Park Garden. We're standing here on this uh, glorious autumn morning with some magnificent scenery to enjoy and a beautiful garden. It's the creation of one man, Ralph Allen, and it was built over a period of something like 20 years, and it was a house that Allen built as a noble seat which sees all Bath and which was built for all Bath to see, according to Philip Thickness, a local writer of the time. The garden was acquired by the National Trust in 1993 
And what the Trust has been doing over the last 20 years or so is to restore the garden to what it would have looked like in the year of Alan's death, 1764. The man behind this garden came from a humble background to become one of the wealthiest men in the country. And he made his fortune by reorganising the postal system and then invested in the stone quarries at nearby Coombe Down. And that stone was used to develop Bath into one of the most exciting leisure centres in the country. When Ralph Allen began planning his garden, fashions were changing quite rapidly. Prior to that time, gardening, which went along with the big country houses of the age, was based on formal planting and symmetrical lines. But they began to fall out of favour and gardens, great gardens, were turning to a more natural style, influenced by paintings and classical architecture. Allen was assisted in his planning by two people, the well-known poet Alexander Pope and also John Wood, the architect, who was devoted to the development of a version of Antonio Palladio's 16th century architecture, Palladian architecture. Right, so now we are going to walk on up past the Serpentine Lake and the Sham Bridge and the wilderness area of the garden so that we can enjoy the magnificent view out over Bath and take a look at the Palladian Mansion, one of John Wood's masterpieces. And here we are standing by the Serpentine Lake and you can hear in the background the sound of water coming from an underground spring, one of many in this particular area, of course limestone and therefore full of these underground springs. And the garden would have been full of the sound of water. That would have been one of its great attractions when it was first opened. Just now we saw a heron. At the moment the garden is closed and so it's developing into a wonderfully biodiverse habitat. We've already seen a dipper flying across the pond at the bottom of the slope. But to see a heron here at the Serpentine Lake is a very rare occurrence and a real delight and treat for us this morning. And there's in front of us the Sham Bridge. And the whole idea of the Sham Bridge was to create the impression of a stream flowing beyond it further down into the garden. Of course, it doesn't do that. It comes to an end here. So here we are, standing in front of the Palladian Mansion, Prior Park School, at the head of Prior Park Gardens, gazing out at a remarkable view of Bath. We can see in the distance St Stephen's Church and the uh, terraces draped across the hillside, Lansdowne and also Lark Hall, and a huge variety of colour 
autumn colour in the trees, with the valley rolling down towards perhaps the icon of the garden, the Palalian Bridge, and the three ponds that are so closely associated with it. This garden went through different stages. The first stage was when Ralph Allen first began his work in the 1730s. In front of us was a lawn sloping down towards the lower end of the valley. To the left, as we stand here, was the area of the garden known as the wilderness. On the right-hand side were vegetable plots, a pineapple pit, a Gothic cottage, and also a path meandering down towards the bottom of the garden. And now we're looking at the, the mansion with the uh, bath stone partly in the shade, but still very striking. And later on today, when the sun's shining on the front of the mansion, it'll take on that honey-coloured effect that is so popular with visitors to Bath these days. Alan moved into this house in the late 1730s and brought some of his family members with him, Gertrude, his niece, and his wife too. And it soon became a hospitality centre for all sorts of well-known and wealthy people of the time. Dr William Oliver and uh, William Pitt, who was at one time MP for Bath. So one of the reasons why Alan did gather these people around him in such an, an efficient kind of way was that he was not particularly well-educated himself, but he was able to be willing to listen and to learn. I think he was the sort of person who wanted to discover things that he hadn't had the opportunity to discover when he was a child. After Alan died without any children in 1764, he was followed two years later by his wife Elizabeth and Gertrude Warburton, his niece, inherited Prior Park. And after the estate was sold in 1787, a whole variety of owners took over Prior Park. And then, of course, in 1993, Prior Park donated the gardens to the National Trust, which began this restoration and conservation programme, which is still continuing to this day. So now we are walking down towards the Gothic temple, and already we're beginning to anticipate that some kind of drama or moment of excitement is going to emerge. We're already moving out of the light of an open piece of lawn into the darkness and dappled shade of the yew trees that are here. And so we are now actually being able to feel a sense of expectancy as we approach something really rather special. And here it is the sudden clearing of trees and invitation to move into a completely different scene. Great vista right across the valley towards the east side of the garden and the remains of a Gothic temple which would have been a little oasis of sound and varied views. An ideal place for afternoon tea or just simply to sit and reflect. So we're now standing in an area surrounded by trees. It feels a little bit like a 
a church or a cathedral with these magnificent thicket of yew. This wilderness area that we are looking at was not really a wilderness. That was a term that was used for areas that were naturalistic in appearance but were actually very much contrived gardens. And it was a true pleasure garden, this, of exotic architectural sights and sounds and sensations. It had a poetic quality about it. And Alexander Pope was responsible for the whole area of this garden, the first part to be developed. It was full of statues with figures associated with famous myths from classical legends. There was lots of water. So if you walk through here, you could hear the sound of water flowing down the different water courses and rills here and culverts from the underground springs above the garden. These wilderness areas, which you can read about in some of Jane Austen's novels, were designed with the drama of theatre in mind. And now we find ourselves out on a stage, if you like, gazing across to, once again, the city beyond and a very clear view of Crow Hall in the distance. This is very much what uh, we want uh, to see. Restored reflections, flowing water, and also the bridge in the background and this sense that you're standing by a river. This is the Palladian Bridge and its three ponds at the foot of the valley. Flowing water rippling in the autumn sunlight, birdsong in the background and a whole range of autumnal colours. Perfect autumn morning for a visit to Prior Park. Thanks so much to Robin Dixon for showing us around Prior Park Gardens. Now, when Robin had finished recording his walk, I bumped into a National Trust staff member, Kate, who told me about the current planting plans for the restoration of the Dams Project. Hi, my name's Kate Locke. I'm the project gardener for the Dams Project here at Prior Park. So I've been brought in to help reinstate the shrubberies which were removed as part of the, the Dams Project. So the idea is to reinstate them in an 18th century landscape garden style, which is theatrical shrubberies, sort of muted use of colours, lots of evergreens, and the idea is to close the views and open up the views and create that theatre that landscape gardens were famous for. So we're using plants that would all have been cultivated in the UK in 1764. That's the date that was chosen to work with. So all the plants would have been available at that time. So that means that we're not using cultivars, for example, with the hydrangea, the common one that you'll buy in the garden centres now, um, would be hydrangea arborescens annabelle. But we're using the straight species. So it meant that we had to have most of our plants contract grown because they're not widely available. Some of them are a little bit more exciting coming from the United States. Um, So we've got things like Calacanthus floridus, which is not commonly seen. So there's lots of interest going in and actually a fair amount of colour, but we've been careful to draw attention to the right places and not the wrong places. So there's been a lot of thoughts gone into it and actually 
the landscape architects who designed the scheme have been helping us to lay it out on the ground. So rather than using really definite planting plans, we're actually setting it out as we go, which is a slightly different way of working from what I'm used to anyway. So yeah, it's been a really interesting project to be involved in. Lots of constraints, for example, getting deliveries in down our very narrow lane has meant that we've had to work with our supplier to get weekly deliveries rather than having it all delivered in one go, which is what you'd normally do. So from that to having somewhere in the region of 90 cubic metres of mulch delivered and how do we get that from the top of the garden where the lorry can reach to the bottom of the garden. So lots to work with. We've only just started the planting, but we're somewhere in the region of 1,500 shrubs in already and about 2,500 left to go. Hopefully the weather will hold out. We'll be working over the next six to eight weeks and we're looking to hopefully have it all in by Christmas. That is weather allowing. Obviously, if we have lots and lots of wet days, it will take a bit longer. But I'm hoping to have all the plants in the ground by Christmas. But there will still be things like the mulching that will go on into the new year and other parts of the project. Lots of tidying up jobs and extra bits to happen. But yeah, the planting hopefully by by the end of 2022. Thanks there to Kate Locke. Prior Park is open at weekends during the winter, so do go and have a visit and see where they've got to. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Footprints is available on all your favourite podcast platforms. So please do like, subscribe And, of course, share with your friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month.